so shall my word be that goes forth or out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, 11. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. The Word of God accomplishes what He sends it for. It succeeds. It has authority and power. It will never pass away. It is truth. It upholds the universe and power, the Word of God. As you turn to Acts 17, we are finding that Paul and his companions are traveling the ancient Mediterranean in response to God's Word. I get up early and read God's Word and I study God's Word and sure, I might say that I've devoted my life to His Word and preaching it, but I am still convicted and so very small in the rest of my life I feel in comparison to what I read about. Men whose lives were shaped, changed, molded, propelled, and were persecuted because of the Word of God. Ask yourself this today. What has the Word of God done in my life recently? Has it planned your schedule has it directed your life in a very real way? Has it consoled you, convicted you, comforted you, made a promise for you? Has it changed you? In the book of Acts, we're, we're catching up with Paul and his companions after two riots. And it appears to be back-to-back -back in the book of Acts. We don't know how many weeks or months elapsed between the two. First in Philippi, Paul had exercised a demonized slave woman. But the masters saw their money exercised more than the demon, and so they riled up a mob against Paul and Silas. And then in, in a city called Thessalonica, Paul's preaching set off another mob who tore up the city, and they attacked likely the host of Paul's church, a guy named Jason. And they bring Jason before the city's rulers convicting him and Paul's church of being seditious. Jason and the church likely had to pay some bail money. The ESV just says that the rulers had taken money as security and let them go. That's where we're at in Acts 17. We'll begin with verse 10. I invite you to turn there and let's stand and read God's Word together. Uh, an amazing five verses we will labor through together today. Uh, verses 10 through 15. I guess that's 16 if you count 10. Acts chapter 17 beginning with verse 10. 
The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray. Father, we study your word this morning. Your word is is doing a thing. It's doing something beyond my comprehension in the life of Paul and Silas. How far they're willing to go, how much they're willing to endure. Would you make us just a fraction of that faithfulness and more so by your Holy Spirit? Father, your word passionately moves Paul, so would you passionately move us today with your word? Give us obedient and receptive hearts. Help us in the areas of our lives we are, where we are dead. Would you move that to life? Would you do something new in our hearts today? Father, get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus at one point in time was giving a parable on four soils. I mentioned this parable briefly last week that these four soils are symbolized four seasons or atmospheres or circumstances wherein the people might receive the word of God. The author of Acts, a man named Luke, records it this way back in his gospel account, Luke 8 beginning with verse 4 says, and when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then when Jesus explains this parable, verse 11, he begins, Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, but then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while, and then a time of testing fall away. And as for what was fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that... In the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. 
These have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. The Word of God will test you. Some translations use temptation, but the Word is more generally test. And in fact, if we compare this with other gospel accounts, the idea is more like testing faith. Matthew would record Jesus saying it this way, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The ground that Paul and Silas have been walking on is rocky, if you catch my illustration. As I said, Paul and Silas have been in Philippi. They, they suffered under a riot. They were whipped and beaten. And then they went to Thessalonica and incited another riot, or so they were accused of doing so. And now we find the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. By night. Things are so bad that they have to leave by night. And they're going to Berea. This, is not, this isn't really an expected visit by outsiders like Paul and Silas who had likely never been to this area. It's as if somebody arrived in Seattle for the first time, they get off the plane, they're foreigners to the area, and they decide to go to Tri-Cities, first thing. They don't go to Portland or San Francisco or even Spokane, but they're going to another big locale, just not one where everyone would suspect you to go to. This is uh, Berea, it's inland from Thessalonica, about 50 miles. It's away from the coast and it's away from the Via Ignatia, a primary Roman road. It's, so it's off the interstate, okay? That's basically the point. Let me just say this, that there are seasons in our world where we, as sons and daughters of God, can be out in the open and socially acceptable but then there are seasons like this when we may have to travel by night and stay in the less suspected areas. And the question is when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, what will we do? Paul and Silas buckle up and press on. Paul had been a persecutor at one point in time, rising in the ranks at Jerusalem, heading out to that oldest city, Damascus, to persecute more believers. But now he is on the receiving end, and if he must travel by night, he does. He does it on account of the Word, because the Word is empowering him. Paul would write Christians in Rome, more than likely at a later day than the day we're reading about in Acts. But we, we examine here, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Christians are to be living sacrifices. And in many times that means in every sense of the word, including the painful connotations of sacrifice. Sometimes it means we travel by night. Sometimes there is persecution that is overt, 
violent, painful, and sometimes it's covert. It's in word, legislation, social stigma. The word endangers. And the word is endangering Paul and Silas, yes, but perhaps Paul and Silas can take note and take hope in this, that the word is endangering the world. Jesus had told the apostle Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word is endangering the gates of hell. The word is on the offense. It sets captives like demonized women free. It sets victims of their own sins and imprisoned by their own sins free. It gives a hopeless people Hope and it gives an empty people living water and bread of heaven. So the word endangers not only those who receive it, but it endangers the world because God is a king who has his eyes set on the world. And Paul and Silas, they're not escaping by night to the lesser known places in defeat or cowering loss, but they have guts to keep doing what they want to do despite the fact that they're running because of it. They were making converts and tossing out more seed in Thessalonica before the latest riot broke out. And then they run by night, and what happens when they get to their next locale, Berea? And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. I think they got plans. (laughs) And you know, when Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians in Acts 9, and then God met him and saved him and empowered him to be his disciple, his missionary, The first thing Saul does when he gets to Damascus, he enters the synagogue to proclaim Jesus as Christ, the Messiah. And Paul starts there for a very basic reason. Jews have been expecting the Messiah. Jews have in their thinking, their theology, and their scriptures a long prophesied about Messiah. There are estimated to be upwards of 350 prophecies about the Messiah from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. When a man fulfills 350 prophecies about the Messiah, I wonder, (laughs) could he be the Messiah? This is big stuff too. We're not talking about he will be of the male sex. He will be Jewish. (laughs) Like that narrows it down. No, we're actually talking about he will be born in Bethlehem. That really narrows it down. One city. He will be born of a virgin. That totally narrows it down. (laughs) Because when Isaiah prophesied about that, that was unheard of. And when that happened through the Virgin Mary, it was unheard of. And I don't know if you know this, but today it's unheard of. So if a virgin gives birth, keep your eyes on that guy. (laughs) Luke, the author of this book of Acts, apparently talked with Mary or those around her. He, He gave us a narrative of her birth, of Jesus' birth in his gospel. And up at least until Philippi, which is two cities back on Paul's itinerary, we went from Philippi to Thessalonica, now we're in Berea, Luke had been traveling with Paul. Never mind the fact that Paul had spent some time with the twelve who had been with Jesus, so I'm assuming Paul is whipping out some prophetic stuff that Jesus has fulfilled as the Messiah. We come to verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
They're poring over prophecies. They're searching the Scriptures. Paul, now you said he was born in Beth. Paul, uh, what did you say about David's psalm, about being forsaken by God and pierced, and how this connects to Jesus? Those sort of things. But I want to back up and not miss what appears to me to be ironic in Luke's writing, in, in culture versus our day. Luke says that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, the Greek word at first meant that primary understanding of noble, higher born, higher class, a nobleman. But it came to mean open-minded, fair, tolerant, and thoughtful. <laughs> here's, here's what's ironic to me. Christians are, are, are accused in our day and age of not being open-minded, fair, and tolerant. And to accept Christianity is to be more narrow-minded and biased and intolerant. Well, the point that Luke is making is what is narrow-minded and biased and intolerant are people like the Thessalonian Jews who had been jealous, took some wicked men of the rabble, formed a mob, and set their city in an uproar. In the noble historian Luke's mind, and in the Holy Spirit's mind, and in the Word of God's mind, historically and timelessly speaking, it is noble, open-minded, fair, and tolerant, to receive the Word of God as true. To compare the Gospel with the Word of God and to find it to be true and to receive it. The Word of God is the Bereans' foundation and it should be our foundation. should be your foundation. Paul would write Timothy, a man that he's actually traveling with. He started this second missionary journey with. And he writes him and he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. For the Bereans, the Word of God was sufficient enough to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul is saying to Timothy that your Bible is sufficient for all matters in life that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This is your foundation. If you ever experience persecution on account of the Word, like Paul and Silas do, this is still sufficient. If you were ever at an emotional or spiritual loss, God's Word is sufficient. Can you say that with me? God's Word is sufficient. God's Word is sufficient. However, God's Word is not sufficient in of itself to do its work on you. It must be believed. That's the next point of verse 12. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. First, I want to say this. Don't underestimate the Word of God. I closed last week's lecture, more than sermon, <laughs> lamenting that we live in a day and age where we have dozens of English translations of the Bible at our disposal, and at the same time we have one of the most saddening lacks of biblical literacy right now. It's been around for a while, there's nothing new under the sun, but in my decade or two of being around in ministry, and maybe this thinking was a little bit before, but there's there's just been this shift 
in Christian thinking, and why I don't know, that has moved away from the public reading and proclamation of God's Word. We'll trade pastors and sermons for motivational speakers. We'll trade time in the church service reading the Bible for skits or movies. Why? I have nothing against motivational speeches or skits or movies, but I do have something against doing these things at the expense of the Bible. I've been part of organizations or committees that seem to balk at the idea of inviting speakers to speak on the Word of God, but then they'll quickly throw money at something that doesn't centralize directly on His Word, and I don't get that. And the things I've been told is, well, it just doesn't get the kind of results it used to. This isn't the 1950s, and there aren't really many Billy Grahams that will be heard in our day. How do you know? Have you ever tried? It seems like if there are a few public or maybe private encounters to the resistance of the Word of God, Christians are quick to just try and change the game and say, well, what will work? Well, Paul and Silas just seem to move to a different town and they try the same tactics with the Word of God. I wonder which method we should emulate. The noble Bereans took the Word of God in the Scriptures, heard the Word of God in Paul, and belief happened. Do you know that in a country like America, where most people are educated and anyone can read a book, even a Bible, I talked all about how many Bibles are out there are out there last week, and I can guarantee that there's a Bible for everybody. Don't underestimate the Word of God, the Bible. If you or I ever think, gee, I want to witness to somebody, but I don't know what to say or do, handing out a Bible is still a great way to start. And if we sweat beads saying, I wonder if that will work in our day and age, well, they still make Bibles, people are still learning how to read, and the Holy Spirit still speaks through His Word. I don't know why not. It just amazes me. It's almost as if some evil force or enemy in the world that doesn't like God has been working on Christians to get them to think that preaching, speaking about, or giving God's Word is either outdated, old, doesn't work, it's too goofy, it's too cultish, so maybe we should just sweat about witnessing but never do it. Almost as if there's an enemy out there saying those things. I don't know. I have a dare for you. It's going to be a hard dare, but you guys are all adults. I think some of you wore two pairs of socks, so if one blows off. I dare you to give a Bible away this week. I'll make a compromise with you in the next five weeks. I dare you to give a Bible away, and let me be specific, to someone who you think may not be saved. I just dare you to do it. Don't underestimate God's Word. We see in this case in Berea that many believed, not a few, an archaic way of saying quite a few, Greek women of high standing. This happened in Thessalonica too, Greek women of high standing, and I mentioned a month or so ago when we were last in Acts that there is documentation that during this time many Greco-Roman women of high standing seemed to show an interest in Judaism. Hence their presence at the synagogues that Paul comes to and preach. And they seem to receive the gospel just as well. And in fact, the way that Luke writes about the time in Thessalonica, it's not certainly verifiable, but it could be that the Jewish 
rabble, riot, rousers in Thessalonica were jealous because these rich women took to supporting the Christian cause and thus a lot of financiers were stripped away from the synagogue. It was as well as men, again, Luke writes, that they believed too. I want to zoom out a bit and consider the title of this sermon, so I guess it's halftime and intermission. Um, it's called The Word on Fire. You and I are likely familiar with fire. It's random and it's sometimes all-encompassing. It's, it's destructive and sometimes it goes everywhere. And while some forests with decaying and, and dying dry limbs and branches and trees might be stripped clean, meanwhile houses unfortunately burn and air gets polluted. So fire can be both refining and purifying as well as deadly and destructive. The Puritans would say that the, sun, that the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. That's the word of God. It's like a fire. It endangers the world. It endangers Paul and Silas, but it's also our foundation. It brings belief to some, but for others the word is despised. Let's hear this in verse 13. When the uh, Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Now, in this time, we need to realize that any of the the legal matters that Paul and Silas may have gone through at Thessalonica has no bearing in Berea. Uh, Berea could care less about Paul and Silas's accusers and the rulings that were had in Thessalonica, so the Thessalonian agitators had to start all over again. So just as the gospel knows no difference between Jew and Gentile, the gospel's enemies seem to know no difference either. And sadly, this isn't new for Paul. Hundreds of years ago, when we did our second dive in the book of Acts, we were looking at Paul's first missionary journey. And in Acts 14, when Paul came to a city called Lystra, he received some haters from towns he had already been through, Antioch and Iconium. And it amazes me how upset, it, how upset people can be about good news. And what's ironic is that it seems consistently that Paul and his companions are thrown under the bus for their disturbing the peace. Whereas back in Thessalonica, this was the charge. These men who have turned the world upside down, or the NIV says, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have come here also. They've turned the world upside down. They're the trouble causers. Well, who's the group of peace disturbers coming to agitate and stir the crowds? The Christians who who, who come to the synagogues to give sermons or the Jews who are so vehemently against the Word of God. They're, They're willing to come to other towns to make sure the people that they persecuted in their own town would continue to face it in other towns where they have no business bothering. But this is what happens when the Word is despised. Paul knows firsthand the hatred that rises in persecutors' hearts. Paul himself used to be in the shoes of his persecutors. He watched one of the early deacons die by being stoned to death, Stephen. And then Luke says in Acts chapter 9 that Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, excuse me, Saul then, but went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if any 
he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Like these Jewish agitators from Thessalonica heading to Berea, it wasn't enough for Paul to persecute Christians in his own hometown. He, uh, he wanted to round them up in other cities and bring them back to the hot seat of persecution in Jerusalem. This is how strong the Word of God provokes people. And you need to know that Jesus takes that personally. God takes despising His Word personally because when Paul is on his way to Damascus, Luke tells us that he's blinded by a light from heaven. He falls down and he hears, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Do you hear that? And in fact, you need to know that, that when God's people are persecuted, he says he is persecuted. Jesus says we are his body, and so it only makes sense that when the body suffers, Jesus fills it. Why do people like this even exist? This is what I puzzled over for far too long as I studied this passage, where, as Christie would observantly say, overthink. <laughs> Why are there Sauls of Tarsus or Thessalonian Jews who find it necessary to waste energy, travel long roads, raise a bunch of heck about Christians who love Jesus, want people saved, and are being nice to people. What is so threatening about them that moves the souls of this world? And in the words of the great theologian, Dr. Seuss, I puzzled about this until my puzzler could puzzle no more. And I finally came to a, a commentary on this that mentioned something that I admit had crossed my mind before, but I considered it too simple of an answer. I guess I don't believe in simplicity. And there may be something deeper, I was sure, but on second thought, it's the only answer that fits. The bottom line is that it's satanic. It's satanic. Jesus, in the book of John, is having a discussion with these sorts of Jews. They're just hostile. They're just saying, shut up, Jesus. You don't speak the truth. You make me so angry with what you say. I want to I plot your death. These sorts of Thessalonian Jews that are chasing Paul now, and we see this exchange in John 8. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I come from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. That's the issue. It's going to be hard for the Thessalonian Jews and Saul's in our day, but the issue is not a failure for the word to be communicated. The issue is not because the gospel is just too good, too full of grace, really hard stuff to stomach, I know. The issue is this, that some people cannot bear to hear the word of God. They cannot bear it because God's word is as confrontational and convicting as it is comforting. It is life-judging as much as it is life-saving. It is personal and meddling as it is personable and relevant. And opposition, the kind of opposition that makes some Thessalonians get up one day and say, I want to travel 50 miles on foot or horse to pick on some guys talking about a Savior. That's demonic. 
That is satanic. Opponents of the Word of God can only be opponents insofar as they mimic their spiritual father, a murderer and a liar, hence their tactics. Lying about what Paul and the companions are about and inciting people to do nothing less than ultimately murder them. It's what Paul was about before he was saved. Persecution in the New Testament usually ends in one of two ways. We usually only see two outcomes. One is martyrdom. It happened with Jesus. It happened with Stephen. It ends up happening with most of the apostles. The other outcome is scattering. When Jesus and his disciples were being picked on in one city, they'd move on. And in fact, when Jesus decides to finally return to Jerusalem for what would be his last time, this was brought to his attention where the disciples say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again? See, it's not sinful for Christians to try and avoid persecution when necessary, when possible. Because when Christians scatter in the face of persecution, it makes for more opportunities to spread the gospel where they scatter. Now, don't hear me wrong. Some missionaries I know are called to serve in hard-to-serve areas. That EFM uh, insert in your bulletin will is really enlightening. But as I just said, Jesus eventually returned to Jerusalem. Paul, here in the book of Acts, is going to go to Rome many times knowing it might be his last time. But the word is causing Paul to scatter again here, these last two verses. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. So the crowd agitating Thessalonian Jews are beginning to do their thing in Berea, demonically inspired persecution. And before it got too loud or riotous, the brother, Luke's way of saying the church, sent Paul off. Get out of Dodge, you did some ministry here, a church is planted, it's growing, but it's you they want, so leave for your own safety. But Silas and Timothy, they've been with Paul for this second missionary journey for most of the time. Timothy was picked up in one of their first stops, but here at Berea, they remained there. Paul apparently is very singled out here in the persecution. The church needs some leaders in Berea, perhaps to disciple them on a few more things. Things that Paul didn't have time or safety to if he didn't want some persecutors breathing down their backs. Verse 15, it says, Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. As we back out and look at all of this, here's what I see. The word is on fire. It's endangering people having to consider their souls. It's endangering those who are ministers of the Word, facing persecution. It's the foundation of noble-minded Jews who receive the Word of the Gospel. The Word is believed by many and their lives are changed for the better, like Saul of Tarsus, who is now Paul the missionary. The Word is despised, like Saul, like the Jews who are chasing Paul all around ancient Greece. And the Word scatters people. The Word forces people to move. And so I have to ask, what is the Word doing in your life today? The author of Hebrews gives us the memorable verses. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
wonder if you feel endangered by the word today. Have you been convicted of, of sin? Is it pulling out some things in your mind and your heart? And if you're honest, your first reaction is just to judge. You don't know my life, Pastor Kevin. Or maybe it's to minimize. These are just gooey emotions and some coincidences. Surely the Holy Spirit is not talking to me about blank. Is the word your foundation? Have you given it the authority the way noble-minded people ought to? Have you given it say in your life over the world's say, over the so-called experts have said? Have you given the word its proper authority as your foundation? Have you believed the word today? Have you accepted that the word calls us to account? The word says, Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin of our wrongdoing is death and spiritual death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And eternal may have a, a quantity sound to it, an infinity, but the word is more about the quality. Jesus offers life here now and abundantly. And have you accepted Jesus' gift that he stood in your place for your sins and he has paid the price for your sins? Do you believe the word? Or do you despise the word? Maybe, I hope not, but, but maybe you're violent and hostile like the crowds chasing Paul. But maybe you're, you despise it in the way of being passive about it. Do you open your Bible every day? Do you pray and speak to God every day? You know, in our itinerary with Paul, he's headed to Athens, but then he's going to go head to Corinth, where Silas and Timothy are going to come back to him. And from there, he's going to write to that church in Thessalonica, where that riot just happened, and that those Thessalonian Jews chased him to Berea. And to the Thessalonians, Paul writes, Do not quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 That's a way of despising the word. How so? How do we quench the spirit? We give him no room to talk. He talks through his word a lot, but he also convicts us of sin, and if we ignore that, we quench him. He also gives us directives. I want you to go here. I want you to talk to these people. I want you to minister to that person. And rejecting his word is despising his word. And if we say, well, I wonder why he never talks to me, well, it's because you never answer. You tell him, no, you're not saying that. Friends, the word of God is on fire, and his word touches so many elements in our lives and world. And I pray that the way it touches us is because we're obedient to his word, submissive to his word, yielding to his word, being used by his word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, some of us pride ourselves in getting to church today. Um, but we look at what Paul and Silas endure. Um, we see what they were willing to do because their faith in you and their faith in your word was proven by their actions in a very real way. Father, some of us Perhaps you, we need to ask for your forgiveness. We've lost a belief and a trust and an admiration for your word. We, we've lost the belief in the power that it has. Would you help us to change our hearts today? 
Father, would we consider your word for what it is, directly from God with full authority and power? The very universe is sustained by your word. Father, would you help us to be willing to share your word with others? I pray that many of us would take up that dare over the next five weeks to hand a Bible to someone who may not know you. Yes, it might be hard. Yes, it might make us sweat. Um, But what were Paul and Silas doing with your word? Sweating. Being beaten and whipped and being chased. So, Father, would you give us, help us to be faithful with a little so that you might help uh, ask us to be faithful with a lot. Father, I pray that we would carry this truth with us, that it would do the desired work you have in our hearts for us. Help us to be obedient. We pray against the enemy, that he would have no say, that he would not minimize or cause us to doubt or delay, but rather to trust and obey you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.